presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Good evening and welcome to this special episode of Idaho Reports. I'm Melissa Davlin and I'm joined tonight by Governor Brad Little and Idaho Department of Health and Welfare Director Dave Jepson. Before we get to questions, I want to set the stage for how we got here tonight. Starting Wednesday, Ada County reverted back to stage three following a spike in cases and an order from Central District Health. Also Wednesday, the state, the state set a record for most new cases reported in one day at 243. Idaho Department of Health and Welfare reported another 220 on Thursday. As of Thursday, Ada, Ada and Canyon counties alone have reported 557 new cases so far this week. Up north, Kootenai County is also seeing a small spike with 47 cases so far this week. That's after three months of little to no recorded activity in the Panhandle region. Governor and Director, on Thursday you announced that the entire state is staying at stage four while you are moving to a more regional approach for management. Uh, I'm curious first about that statewide approach uh, to stage four. Walk me through why we're staying at this stage right now as opposed to going back a stage or uh, advancing to no restrictions at all? Well, uh, Dr. Hahn did a really good job today of explaining it. Our, our gating criteria has got uh, kind of three different gates. Some of them are or and some of them are and. And, and the rate of positivity and the number of healthcare workers were the two gates that we didn't get through. If you recall, uh, two weeks ago, we announced as we were moving, we just barely made it. And we cautioned everyone, including ourselves, that, that uh, we, we have to continue to be on good behavior uh, to, to get through the next gate. And we didn't do it, but the most critical ones, which are uh, critical access, care, uh, uh, ICU, uh, we're in good shape there, which are the ones you're really worried about. But if you have a run in those positivity rate, and healthcare workers being jeopardized, you jeopardize the other ones. So, but this was the plan we put together from the very get-go when we started. You know, talk to me a little bit more about that positivity rate, Director Jepson. That's specifically the percentage of tests that come back positive, regardless of how many raw number of tests you, you're receiving. That's correct. Positivity rate means how many positive results we get back as a percentage of total tests given. Uh, we have increased testing across the state, which is a good thing. Uh, in May, we were averaging between four to 5,000 tests a week. Here in June, we've been pushing between eight and 11,000 this week in terms of tests. And we were expecting that positivity rate to stay about the same. We were floating around about 4%. Uh, th that meant there'd be more cases because we'd find more people in the community. But as long as that positive positivity rate was around four or 5%, we didn't feel that indicated an increase of disease burden in the population. However, as of lately, we've seen that positivity rate increase, indicating that the virus is more active in the community. And there have been some days where that positivity rate has been as high as 8% almost, right? Yes, back in early April, we were uh, just kind of touching 8, 9% for a few weeks in there. 
Got it, got it. I, I'm, I'm curious, why do the regional approach now as opposed to at the beginning of this public health emergency? <clears throat> well, if I had my graph here, which uh, uh, Dave and I love our graph, which is the basically the level of healthcare that we started out with, and the fact that if you have a big surge, you've got people that can't get into the hospital. Uh, when we started, our whole goal was to make sure that we that that we really contained uh, the coronavirus, uh, but we preserved capacity, ICU capacity for particularly the people that you know you've heard about what happened in New York. We know what happened in Blaine County. Uh, it, it's in our state. We had a, a community that had no health care capacity, so we looked at the whole state, uh, basically uh, asked for everyone to stay home, to stay safe, and to make sure we could build that capacity. But we've done a lot of things. We've got more PPE, we've got surge capacity in our ICUs, and that's just been us working with the hospitals, working with the health districts to have surge capacity. We've, we've, we've opened up some rules to where uh, there's more ways we can deliver healthcare. Uh, we've, do, we've done a lot of things, and as we've done that, the thing that we were most worried about uh, is we feel a little more confident about it. And that's what we did statewide. But we, uh, Director Jepson just uh, informed me of another county that we finally got a positive case in. But up until day- that's Boise County. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go, breaking news on uh, <laughs> Idaho reports. Um, but until that, we had nine counties where there were no cases. And I said all along, when we get this, this has been the advice of my coronavirus working group, uh, everything we've said over and over and over, when we get our arms around this, we should not penalize those counties that don't have any cases. And, and we, we believe uh, that we'll be able to manage it on a regional basis. And that's what we said from the very start. Director, as you move to a more regional approach, you know, all of the metrics that are displayed on the state's website, the coronavirus.idaho.gov dashboard, are statewide. So we know that statewide there are at least 50 ICU beds that are free and, and uh, a few hundred ventilators that are free. But regionally, how robust is that supply? Is it going to be the same in South Central Idaho as it is in North Idaho? Uh, that's a great question, uh, and just as we prepared for this regional approach, we've added some more data on the website that actually shows county by county and historically what the case counts look like and, and those sorts of things. Um, that's a new tab on our on our dashboard. Uh, we do know that the um, supply of ICU beds, uh, those sorts of things by region, we get that data directly from the hospitals, uh, and that is data we share directly with the health districts. Uh, actually, the case count data comes from the health districts to us, so they already have it. Uh, we collect centrally the hospital data and we send that back to those health districts. Uh, Idaho, the, I will just say that the, the number of ICU beds and, and uh, ventilators and hospital beds is really proportional to the population. And so there's more here in the Treasure Valley because there's more people here. There's uh, a, a proportionally about the same amount uh, in the rest of the parts of the state. Uh, the places we worry about the most are the rural counties uh, who have, in some cases, like Boise County has zero uh, healthcare capacity or hospital capacity, certainly. Uh, and so it's not just looking at those big regional areas, it's making sure we preserve capacity for anything that might happen in those small rural counties. You know, I'm, I'm curious, as you move to this regional approach, uh, you spoke about this a little bit at the press conference today, but you're kind of doing statewide what we saw this week with Central District Health and Ada County, saying, you know what, this is a specific hotspot and we feel like we need to roll back, you know, um, maybe shut down some businesses. But if there are cities or counties or health districts that 
um, want to place more strict requirements than what you're comfortable with? Are, are you okay with that? If there are mask mandates or, um, you know, all the, rolling all the way back to stage one, is that something that you're okay with? Uh, well, we had the conversation, even the, con even the action by the Central District Health, uh, they actually met on Saturday and, and uh, we, were, we were part of those discussions and we intend to be a part of those discussions because the data, a lot of the data, as Director Jepson just alluded to, comes from us. So we want, we want to be part of that uh, discussion. But, you know, they've got a good sense on the ground. Our whole model the, the, traditionally has been we handle uh, uh, any kind of a disease outbreak through our, our district health departments. That's law. That's, that's what we've done in Idaho. This is a this is an outlier event from the normal way we do things. That's what the health districts are for, is to handle these things on a regional basis. So you're trusting the locals for the most part, is we, what you're saying? We, we will trust, we will work with them, uh, and that's our intent. I, I wanna ask about testing, Director Jepson. Sure. Uh, you know, this, this rise in positive, uh, uh, our mm -hmm. positive percentage um, has come with an increase in the raw number of tests that we're doing. But according to Johns Hopkins University, Idaho is the last of 50 states when it comes to per capita uh, testing. So especially as that percent positive goes up, are you worried that um, we have some major undercounts in our known numbers of cases? Well, we've always known that um, as we test more, we're gonna find more cases. And that's certainly been, the, been the, our experience so far. Um, when we were testing four to five thousand a week, we were getting about twenty to thirty. When we went up to about eight to nine to ten thousand, we were getting forty to fifty. That makes sense. The federal uh, targets from CDC is that we should be testing two percent of our population every month, um, and it's taken us uh, longer than any of us would have liked to ramp up our testing capacity. But we're now achieving that here in June and well going forward to be able to achieve those targets of two per a minimum of two percent a month. That's what the CDC has really said, if that level of testing is at this point sufficient to really know where the disease burden is. As we see that percent positivity go up, uh, that actually means that the disease is getting more active and it means we probably need to do even more testing. Uh, as the governor said before, and I'll reiterate, um, we know that our state ca capacity within the state is about 23,000 tests a week, and we want to preserve some of that capacity exactly for this. So as we have an increase in positivity, we can use that surge capacity to do additional testing. I, I want to interrupt here. I think you referred to the John Hopkins uh, statistics. Some of the states report more testing than we do. Uh, ours is PCR uh, lab confirmed. A lot of them report uh, antibody testing. Isn't that right, Director? That is correct. Yeah. So, so for for those who don't know, PCR lab testing is if you have the active virus yeah. right now, not if you have previously had it and you have the antibody. So we think they're grading on the curve, and we're getting an unfair grade. <laughs> that said, <laughs> testing you said still needs to yeah, ramp exactly. up around. Well, the we will continue. <laughs> we, we, to ramp I, up. I totally agree with that part. You know, I've, I've looked at this testing data on the coronavirus dashboard every day hmm. uh, for the past three months since that website's been out. And you know, looking at that testing data by public health district, there are some really big disparities in the number of test returns by public health district. You know, there have been uh, multiple days where public health district two, for example, hasn't reported any tests or there have been just a handful in public health district one. So. As you move to this regional approach, are you confident that these public health districts have the capacity and the resources to handle this increase in testing? 
we do feel much better about that. And the testing is actually almost primarily done through medical providers. Some pharmacies around the state, we have a couple of pilots around that. Uh, and uh, and so even Kootenai had some drive-through testing for a while up there at the Kootenai Medical Center. Uh, so, and the federal government for the last two months has actually provided us with uh, 40,000 swabs that have come to us. We've distributed through the health districts and out into those providers so they can actually take the samples and get them into the labs. Uh, we do know, as of a month ago, we had some testing deserts. We, we know that. We talked about that at the testing task force recommendation. We have made significant progress towards uh, solving those testing deserts uh, in some of those more rural parts of the state. Um, we also changed the criteria as the testing capacity increased so that we're testing not only symptomatic but asymptomatic folks who have had contact with somebody that's symptomatic. Uh, and that's actually increased uh, those who are asking to be tested as well. So we have some more work to do uh, to make sure we get testing to every corner of the state, but we've made significant progress in the last four weeks. Are those testing deserts why we still have eight counties that haven't reported any cases? Well, <laughs> confirmed cases is when you actually get a test. Um, we, there is some speculation we probably have some active virus in those counties, but we do get test results from those counties, so we know that there is some testing going on. You know, I, I want to ask, too, about how uh, transmissible this virus is. Uh, Karen from Boise asks uh, if you can explain how Ada County got to the number that for every um, positive person, they may infect up to seven more people. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, sometimes in the scientific literature referred to as R-naught or RT, which is rate of transmission. Um, and that's a measure we use to see how, um, how contagious the disease is. And basically, if you have an R-naught of one, that means for each person that gets infected, they're gonna infect on average one other person. Uh, and our goal is to have the R-naught be below one, which means uh, for every person that's infected, there's less than one person else getting infected. That means the disease is going away. Uh, this, this virus is very contagious, and so we know that it can get a pretty high R-naught. Um, I know Ada County released some, or Central District Health released some data on Ada County, uh, and we, the current data would suggest that that is north of one. One of the best ways we have to measure that is really through contact tracing. We can see who has it, and then we can see how many other people they've been in contact with and how many of them have come down with the disease. Uh, and we know that that number is well in excess of one right now in Ada County. Well, and I'll, I'll add on to this. Uh, some of the things that Director Jepson and his coronavirus uh, uh, group have taught me is that that we know the coronavirus is at a minimum double of what uh, was the standard for the flu. So people say it's just the flu. Uh, this, and a lot of it's because of the asymptomatic nature of it. When people get the flu, they're sick and they stay home. Uh, when people get coronavirus, they feel good and go out and, and spread it. I believe the r not. Uh, factor here was a, a result of the tracing, but the bottom line is it's way more infectious than anything else we've had for a long time. Director, you brought up uh, contact tracing and you know, some of the lawmakers who participated in a, a special meeting this week um, who were critical of, of your response to the coronavirus pandemic raised concerns about contact tracing and children potentially being removed from homes if the parent tests positive. Is there any truth to this? Uh, no. No, we're, we're not removing kids from homes if there's a positivity, uh, if there's a positive case in their home. That is just uh, not simply not true. Um, contact tracing has really been practiced for well over 100 years. The first reference we can find in code is over 100 years ago. And it's a very simple practice. It says if you've become infected with a disease, whether that's tuberculosis or, uh, or coronavirus, 
Uh, it's an interaction that's voluntary where the contact tracer from the local health district will ask you where you've been and who you've been in contact with. They'll give you some advice about what you should do to protect you and your family. Um, and then they'll go out and let those folks, they won't share who has was the positive, but they'll go out and share with those that they've been in contact with that they may have been exposed and then you know, assess, are they getting symptoms? Do they need to get tested? Do they need to isolate? How long were they? What was their situation? Uh, so that's what contact tracing is. It's a voluntary activity that's really important to let your friends and family and neighbors know if they've been in, in, uh, exposed, uh, but it has nothing to do with removing children from homes. Yeah, you know, one last question on contact tracing. is there Are there any le legal repercussions for somebody who tests positive and declines to participate or answer questions from a contact tracer? Uh, there's no legal obligation they have to do that. It's a voluntary activity. Um, we strongly encourage folks to do that. Uh, and what we find is people generally want their folks they've been in contact with to know that they've been exposed. Uh, and so we find a very, very, very high participation rate in contact tracing. People care about fellow Idahoans and they want to protect them. Governor Little, one of the other criticisms that came up from that meeting was that your administration has appropriated funds from the CARES Act without the legislature. Uh, normally, lawmakers do control that spending authority. So what uh, legal authority allows you to appropriate that money? Well, well current law, uh, they call it non, and, and you're a JFACer, so you understand this, non-cognizable non funds that come in uh, there's there's been a process for a long time, and of course these are not state tax dollars. These are these are dollars that Congress said we're going to send these funds out to the states to to ameliorate the impacts of the coronavirus. Every governor got this money. Every governor's been spending it. Uh, we have uh, more than a lot of the other states. We have a committee that gives me advice and counsel on it, where there's a the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee and the Senate Finance Committee that serve on that committee, along with the Lieutenant Governor, uh, to give us advice and counsel. We're in constant communications with the legislature. The issue is, this is an ongoing issue. Things pop up, we've got to address it. Other than calling the legislature back to be in in place all the time, it's, it's really not pragmatic, but we, we're always keeping them Im impacted. But that's a process that's been in place for a long time, is when those funds come available outside of the legislature, the legislature obviously raises taxes and spends the state general fund. These are federal dollars, but they do give spending authority on the, on the state level. You know, some of those states that you mentioned still have legislatures that are still in session, and a committee that gives you advice isn't the same as uh, the Joint Finance and Appropriations Committee that has the legal authority to appropriate that money. Would you be willing to consider a special session to discuss this with the lawmakers if they asked? I was on, I had a conversation, two conversations today about the, the Constitution, the Idaho Constitution, says that a special session is called by the governor for an issue. Well, if the issue is how do you spend on 50 different programs, I don't see that as an issue, but I'm willing to talk about it. There's other things that I've been talking to legislators, uh, my staff have been talking to legislators about, about a reason that you'd have a special session. But there's literally dozens and dozens of opinions about what that should be. I've been involved, uh, in and around the legislature for a long time. Every special session in Idaho has been for one issue. 
You know, a lot of your fellow Republicans have been critical of you, and right now the state convention, the state Republican convention is happening in Nampa. Are you planning to attend that this weekend? I'm looking forward to it. Now, we got a lot of your questions specifically about masks. Sophia in Boise asks, the states that are mandating masks are seeing a marked decrease in cases while the states that are not see while the states that are not mandating are seeing a market increase. You say you're avoiding a mask mandate to protect individual liberty, but what about my liberty as a disabled person to go outside safely? Well, uh, actually, uh, Director Jepson uh, sent me the list today of all the states that have mandates, and a lot of those mandates are, are not true mandates. And, you know, to say, I'm gonna mandate that everybody wears a mask, what about the person that works in rural Idaho by themselves all day, every day. Uh, most of them say, if you're in an area where you're, you can't social distance, particularly if you're inside in your confined area, and you can't keep the six feet of social distancing, you should wear a mask. And hardly any of them have a penalty for it. What have Director Jepson and I done over and over and over? We've asked people. We've we've cajoled, we've asked the health districts, we've done everything. I don't see where that's a lot different than a state saying, you should wear a mask, but we're not gonna do anything about it if you don't. I believe that the people of Idaho wanna do the right thing and they will. You say that, but I've gone to multiple stores and seen not very many people wearing masks. You, you said that you've relied on Idahoans and their common sense in the past, but wouldn't a requirement to wear masks knowing what we know about reducing the transmission of coronavirus, be less disruptive to small businesses than having to shut them down if we see an increase in cases? Uh, I, I don't believe so. I mean, uh, what I'm seeing is uh, some uh, business entities that are saying, uh, please wear a mask or you have to wear a mask. And that there are some businesses that do that. And that, that is moving where we don't have a lot of mask wearing. There's some here in Ada County or in areas where they don't see it as a threat, but the, the adoption rate is going up, not as fast as I'd like. Uh, but uh, some of the states have said, we're gonna put in mandatory masks, had to unwind it because nothing was happening. We have not put one mandate in place in Idaho that with the exception of two or three things, we haven't had it done and I wanna continue it that way. I, I want to talk to you about the state working with Idaho's five tribes. Uh, just today, the Nez Perce tribe announced two more cases on their reservation. Um, they have about an 8% positive return on their tests. There are 28 reported cases on the Coeur d'Alene reservation. How are the tribes in the state currently handling the pandemic? Do they have enough resources? And what is the state doing to help them out? Yeah, actually, I would say the partnership between the tribes and the state has been uh, exemplary between in this pandemic. Uh, the governor hosts a call weekly with all of the tribes. We go through what's going on with the state. The tribes provide their update. Uh, and often uh, we get off that call just uh, feeling really great about how well the tribes have uh, approached this pandemic. Uh, they've been early to send messages to their tribal members. Um, they have actually uh, expanded testing at a really appropriate and correct rate as that's have happened on their on their uh, on their their tribes, 
And the, um, the, th the best thing that they've done is they've had the tribal elders and tribal members, and sometimes tribal elders, be trained on contact tracing. Uh, so when they have a case, what we've observed with the tribes is they instantly test everyone around them. Uh, it's usually related to a family or a family event. Uh, and then that contact tracer, often an elder of the tribe, will call and say, okay, here's what this, you know, who have you been in contact with? You need to stay home for two weeks. Uh, and that carries a lot of weight in their culture for that to come from their leaders. Uh, so they've, they've actually been doing extremely well at staying on top of the, the pandemic. You know, is that, are those resources uniform throughout the five tribal nations? Well, uh, they've, there was CARES Act money available. There's money from the health districts. There's money from Idaho. Uh, I haven't heard uh, on the calls that uh, Director Jepson and I've been on, I haven't, I haven't uh, uh, heard uh, one of the tribes, uh, one of the isolated tribes was worried about getting groceries and toilet paper at one time. Other than that, uh, they they have resources, but they really take this seriously. And I'm on calls with governors from all over the, uh, particularly the Western states. And when we, Director Jeffs and I get done with our call, our weekly call with the tribes, I'm very pleased about how active they are. They take great pride in what they're doing in testing and tracing, um, but they're, you know, they're a, they're a population. Uh, in many instances, they're older. In many interests, in many instances, they've got uh, some health compromised people, and they need to be very careful. And I believe they are. You know, on, on the other hand, Hispanic people make up about 13% of Idaho's population, but currently about 35% of known COVID-19 cases in Idaho. We have about three minutes left. But other than translating information into Spanish, what specifically is being done to help? Idaho's Latino community. Yeah, uh, and the only thing I'd say in addition to that data is fortunately we're seeing, we don't see that same um, higher percentage in the in the death rate. So that's been one saving grace here. But in, and nonetheless, we're very concerned about the percentage of Latinos that have been in fact, in, uh, infected. Uh, I've actually had a conversation with, um, and, and as all of the health districts in the, in the department, with the local leaders and organizations for the Hispanic community. Uh, they've gotten some testing into their specific clinics. Uh, we've issued some specific guidance for them that's not only just in Spanish, but culturally appropriate uh, for them as well. And so we continue to work with um, those that they respect and trust in their community to help them understand the pandemic and what steps they need to take to protect themselves and their family. Uh, we probably need to do more. We will continue to do more to reach out to that community, but it's, it's certainly a priority for us. You know, currently, um, the state tracks only Idaho residents who have been infected with coronavirus. Uh, that, of course, leaves the door open for out-of-state residents to not be counted in Idaho or for Idaho to be able to trace or track more of those cases. And I'm thinking, of course, of seasonal workers and students. Um, does the state know how many seasonal workers, uh, in addition to what is in the count so far, have tested positive? Anybody that tests in Idaho, regardless of where they live, we know that positive result. Um, when that is determined that that individual lives in another state, we actually hand that data off to the other state but we do know how many were uh, originated in our state. Off the top of your head, do you know about how many have originated in Idaho? That are no longer in the state? Mm -hmm. um, I'd have to go look that up. I don't know that off the top of my head. You know, uh, the other group, of course, that is showing high numbers is young people. Mm -hmm. And we have talked about this time and time again. We have about a minute left. Is there any plan to try and reach out to people in that age group, ages 18 to 29, who are making up that huge percentage 
of the recent increase. Well, actually, at our last press conference, not the one today, but the one last week or two weeks ago, when you asked that question, uh, we did put into effect uh, a more robust social media program. Uh, we're reaching out. Uh, I'm contacting them all on my TikTok account. I'm kidding. I, uh, I do not believe you have a TikTok, <laughs> Governor. <laughs> I'm going to fact check no, you we, right there. But no, we took your question uh, to heart. and we Because th there's no question that's where our problem is. And when I'm on calls with other governors, this is common denominator all over the United States, that the run-in numbers we're having are of those people that might consider themselves somewhat bulletproof between 18 and 30 years old and that's running through the population. So we took your question. Uh, question to accord and we're acting on it. All right, Governor Little, Director Jepson, thank you so much for your time and thank you for watching. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.